1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey.
2: Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode five of the podcast. This week, I was unbelievably excited to speak with Dr. Christian Casey, who is the CLIR Postdoctoral Fellow of Digital Humanities at the Institute for the Study of the Ancient World at NYU. His research focuses on the use of digital tools to expand our understanding of the pronunciation of the Egyptian language. His work also includes numerous digital projects for the ISA Library and several public outreach initiatives designed to make the study of ancient Egyptian accessible to a broader and more diverse audience. I really got to let my inner armchair literary Egyptologist run wild as we discussed all things Egypt, including the survival of the field of Egyptology, whether accuracy matters in the representation of the ancient world in the media, and about the use of video games as a language learning tool. This was such a fun conversation, and I can't wait for you all to hear it. So with that, I will talk to you all next time. Okay, so I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about sort of what got you into Egyptology, um, just because it is a very niche subject that a lot of people aren't aware of.
3: Yeah, it's a good question. Unfortunately, I don't have a really cool answer for it. I've, I've been thinking for a long time that I need to invent like one of these great like road to Damascus stories that many Egyptologists have where they like remember being three years old and they They went to the Met and they were like, there's nothing so beautiful and fascinating as ancient Egypt. Um, That's not my story. Unfortunately, I have always loved ancient Egypt. um, And I have distinct memories from being a kid and being fascinated with Egyptian things. But the reason that I got into Egyptology and decided to pursue it is that I've always been interested in ancient languages. And I studied classics at UT Austin. And, um, I don't even remember exactly where or when, but I think I was in the classics lounge, which anyone who uh, has done anything with UT Classics will, will immediately have an image of this of this place. Uh, there's this great room at the end of one of the halls um, that just has like a, a big table in it and classic students hang out in there. And this is very like old school, like prof- professorial study. There's like a bust of Cicero and other like random things in there. Um, it's kind of like uh, Merlin's tower in the Sword in the Stone. Um, so I was in there one day, and someone had a book about Egyptian. I think it was uh, Gardner's Egyptian Language, and I looked through it. and And you know, as, as an undergrad, you tend to have time to explore different things. So I ended up just taking it home and and reading about it. And I became absolutely fascinated for a few reasons. Uh, one reason is that. The, the hieroglyphic signs don't stop being pictures of things, which is, uh, I, I need a better way to explain that, let's see. So if you were to look at a text of English, written English, because you know how to read the alphabet, you can't really conceive of not being able to read it. You can't really just see it as a, as a page full of black squiggly shapes anymore. Uh, whereas if you looked at some script you don't know, Uh, So in my case, I might um, look at a page full of uh, Chinese text, which to me, um, it, you know, my brain interprets it as a bunch of random shapes that don't mean anything to me. Uh, With Egyptian, you kind of get both at the same time. So even if you know how to read it exactly, you never stop seeing the pictures of like birds and people and stuff. So it kind of has this magical dual quality where it's perfectly legible as text. And yet at the same time, it's still a piece of art um i i'm just i'm just absolutely in love with that whole the whole thing i love egyptian art i love their sense of proportion and and their aesthetic approach i love that they are uh keen observers of nature so their depictions of the natural world are normally um almost photorealistic sometimes within their you know the the egyptian uh canonical proportional system and that just i think I think that's the biggest thing. If I could pick one reason uh, that I became an Egyptologist, it's that the ancient Egyptians were keen observers of nature uh, in the same way that like Louis Henry Sullivan based his architectural ornamentation on his own uh, fascination with, with nature. And that's where the whole like modernist um, mantra of form follows function comes from. It's, you know, we evolved in a natural environment where Uh, Most things are built the way they are for practical reasons. So like, you know, evolution sculpts things to be functional or or tends to discard them. Um, And so as a result, we tend to find things constructed in that way to be the most aesthetically pleasing things. So any artistic system that um, places observation of nature at its center uh, will be better like, I I would say objectively, but maybe just subjectively for me. um, It just, it has an attraction that really nothing else can compete with.
2: Yeah, I would totally agree. I always loved Egypt so much. I loved everything about it, um, probably since sixth grade. But for me, it was... Uh, the result of an amazing teacher. It was just a random normal sixth grade class where most people are like, okay, well, you know, if I've got to learn something, whatever, I'll just get through it. And that's that. Um, My teacher made it really interactive where we got to our like Egypt unit. And then she was sort of like, oh, you can all pick Egyptian names. I'm going to make each table an ancient Egyptian city. We'll have competitions doing quote-unquote things that ancient Egyptians did. And I just remember that whole unit. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And then she would, you know, tell us. And she she was really great at reading in a really dramatic fashion. So if you can imagine for a second, this like super funny, with a ridiculous laugh, wonderful short teacher just kind of getting up and standing in front of a class of, you know, you're what, 10, 11 at that age. And just going at it. She was like an actress. It was amazing. Um, And she would read Egyptian myths. And I just was like, oh, my God, I have to do this. Um, But I think it's really easy for people to find something that, you know, draws them into Egypt that they love. But it's not easy when you want to go on and, you know, study that. So how did you transfer this just intense interest into Egyptology is an actual subject that I can study. Like, did you know about it, that it was an actual discipline that you could study? Or did you kind of go towards something hoping you could study Egyptology? And then did someone have to be like, actually, did you know Egyptology is a thing?
3: You know, I think it was probably a little bit of both. I definitely didn't think of an Egyptologist as like a, a real job that I could go out and get until I was an undergrad and started learning about um, kind of what academics do. Uh, I remember being stunned as an undergrad to learn that academics write papers. I always thought that was so it's it still to me seems a little strange that you just like sit around and write about things. Don't you like teach people stuff? Um, Not that much, truthfully. Um, So I kind of got my introduction to that whole that whole academic system as an undergrad. Uh, I had a uh, friend who is a grad student. He was actually, he was the teacher in one of my Latin classes uh, as a grad student. He lived across the street from me in Austin. Um, And I talked with him a lot and he kind of explained how things worked. Like, you know, if you want to, if you want to become an Egyptologist or a classicist or whatever, uh, you'll need to apply to grad school. You should be funded through grad school. If you're not being funded, you shouldn't do it. Um, So they should basically pay you to, to get your PhD. Um, And you need to, you know, pick the place where you want to go, talk to the the people who are, um, you know, working there already, find out if it's the right place for you. So as an undergrad in my senior year, I went to the RC conference in Seattle, and I got like funding from my department to go. So that was really cool. And uh, met a bunch of Egyptologists. And I think my first realization um, It echoes uh, Douglas Adams' realization when he went to a scientific conference and met all the scientists. And he was like, you're just a bunch of guys. Um, And that was kind of my reaction too. Guys and ladies, of course, um, especially in Egyptology, tends to be less male-dominated than some fields, although still problematically. So anyway, um, it was kind of that realization of like, you're just a bunch of normal people. I can totally do this. Um, You know, I'm not a super genius, but I don't think all of you are either. I think it's just I think I I think I can do it. Um, so then I went and um, I after I finished undergrad I volunteered on a kibbutz uh, in order to learn Hebrew. Although that didn't really pan out because everyone on my kibbutz spoke in English all the time. Um, and then I moved to Egypt and I worked as an English teacher in Egypt for a couple years. Uh, and then I and then I moved to Peru and then I applied to grad school. Um, so. I think, uh, I think that was a big part of it was that I, uh, I went and learned Egyptian Arabic. At the time that I left Egypt, I, I was just kind of, you know, freewheeling around and, and traveling and, uh, you know, just hanging out. And I spoke Egyptian Arabic more or less fluently at the time, um, although I've since unfortunately lost a lot of my knowledge of it because I just never really have an opportunity to use it. Um, but so I, so then when I applied to grad school, I had, um, I, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on an Egyptian text. I studied with a classics professor who also just, uh, shared an interest in ancient Egypt. And we worked on, you know, Egyptian language and hieratic and all those things. Uh, and then I went and lived in Egypt. And I think all of those things allowed me to have a competitive application to grad school. And, and that's kind of where it went from there was, uh, going to grad school at Brown. Brown was my, far and away my top choice because I wanted to work with Jim Allen. Definitely one of the best decisions I've ever made. Jim is, you know, obviously I'm biased, but he's one of my favorite people in the whole world. Um, He is just, he's the most wonderful contradiction of a grumpy grandpa you've ever met in a way that is just like, it never stops being delightful. Like he's, people often mistakenly think that he's mean because he's just very curmudgeonly but he's actually like the kindest person you've ever met in your life. Um, But he also just has this grumpy disposition. So he's like the sweetest guy in the world, but he's always just like, (laughs) it just warms my heart every time I interact with him. Um, And yeah, that's, that's really, so I, I think if I give anyone credit for me managing to become an Egyptologist, it definitely goes to Jim Allen. Um, he lived in egypt for a time so we were able to you know kind of break the ice over you know shared experience and those kind of things and um, yeah just went from there taught me a bunch Yeah of stuff.
2: i think that's that's super awesome i love hearing about everyone's different path into whatever ancient field um, they got into uh, just because, you know, there is such a, there there are so many people today that we can meet who, oh, you know, they went to college for math or biochemistry or something just sort of more, I don't want to say, I mean, more well known, really. Um, and, you know, I think one of the biggest things that I really like to, you know, dig into and, and hear about is I feel like such a barrier to entry for any of these fields is just the lack of accessibility of them. Oh, yeah. Um, Because I, I got lucky. I don't remember who it was, but somebody when I was younger um i was maybe in seventh or eighth grade but somebody knew egyptology was an actual field of study and they happened to mention it to me and they they were like oh we know you love egypt you should think about doing this you should think about you know what can you do in high school to prepare you to go into egyptology and sort of things kind of fell into place and then i just had a great conversation with um steve harvey egyptologist um
3: i know steve yeah i know he i met him at the met my first RC conference.
2: Yeah. So I, I think like a, a neighbor's friend, he he was like the uncle of a neighbor's friend or something. It was so weird, but somehow he knows everyone
3: aligned. on earth. So it's not surprising to me.
2: He okay. Yeah. So no, it was great because I I got to talk to him and then he advised me and he sent me a couple emails and he was like, yeah, if you want to be an Egyptologist, you got to do X, Y, and Z. You're only going into high school. So you have lots of time. Um, and then when it came time to, like, looking at colleges, I sort of stopped and said, ooh, uh, so my choices are essentially Brown, Harvard, Hopkins, UCLA, Memphis, some other in- elite institutions. Um, and I said, wow, this is going to be really hard. Um, I, for my whole life, I've struggled with like math and science. So I just knew I was like, I'm going to have trouble getting into these. So then that really discouraged me. And I said, I'll get into somewhere and hope that they have a bunch of Egypt classes that I can cobble together and maybe create my own major. That didn't happen. I ended up going to the University of Missouri and Mm. I fell into classics, which was a wonderful landing spot. And I love it. And I love everyone who helped me. Um, But, you know, I didn't get to do that, even though that was kind of my first Ancient love, so you know do you feel that it's still kind of a a problem that it's so hard to to get into these programs
3: yeah, absolutely um, that's um, one of the things that i that I'm really passionate about is is addressing that issue. It's probably the thing I spend most of my time on in one way or another actually um, so it it is the case that you know Egyptology is almost always relegated to these like very elite institutions that are super expensive, super exclusive. Um, And it it creates a problem for, from the perspective of Egyptology, because it means that we can't actually recruit and, you know, maybe recruits a little, a little tough a word, but you know, for any field to survive, there has to be a next generation, right? For, for anything to survive, there has to be a next generation. And uh, Egyptology definitely has some trouble with that. While everyone loves the subject, finding people who will actually, you know, who are willing to go work in the subject is is not as easy as you might think. Um, And a big part of the reason is just that it's it's so exclusive. It's so tied to these universities. A big part of the reason for that is that historically, Egyptology has been associated with aristocracy. So um, uh, from, from the first era of Egyptomania in Europe, following Napoleon's expedition in, um, in at the end of the the end of the 18th century. So for for the 1800s, uh, Egyptomania was a major thing in Europe. Uh, there, you know, mummy unwrappings and those sorts of things. And then, beginning in the 20th century, uh, Egypt was a destination for wealthy people, both as tourists and also for health reasons. So. Um, you know, in the days before antibiotics, a lot of people with lung ailments would spend their winters in Egypt because of the uh, warm, dry climate. So that created um, a patronage system where people like uh, Jack Morgan, wait, is it Jack? Uh, J.P. Morgan Jr. was, uh, he had some sort of ailment, spent his winters in Egypt, and then collected manuscripts and uh, left his house and part of his estate to found the Morgan Library in New York. Um, and that's kind of the, the system of support that Egyptology has relied on for all of its history. People like um, J.P. Morgan, Jr., who was one of the richest men in the history of the world, uh, becoming interested in the subject and just kind of dumping huge amounts of money into it. Um, And then, of course, that's why it ends up at elite institutions, because if you are a multi-billionaire and you're spending money, you probably are going to spend it at a place that provides a sense of personal prestige and all those things. So Egyptology really has to move away from that model in order to survive. Uh, There there are no more aristocrats wintering in Egypt. That's just that's a thing of the past. Uh, Colonialism is not entirely a thing of the past, but it's definitely, we are not engaging in those practices to the same level that we, weren't, that we once were, thankfully, uh, but it, it also, for better or worse, was a source of support for the academic study of Egyptology. Um, there's some good things about that. Uh, the, the, the brightest light uh, that I see in the current state of Egyptology is that there is so much more involvement from Egyptians. Um, the, the most recent Netflix documentary, there are Egyptian archaeologists, um, and I mean like people who are Egyptian, who are archaeologists, uh, speaking in Egyptian Arabic, you know, with subtitles, and, and the, it's it's actually being conducted on Egyptian terms. That's one of the best things that's come out of this, um, you know, the, the change of history. But maintaining support for the academic study of Egyptology is still going to depend on you know, attracting interesting students in Western countries, and I'm um, sorry, did I say interesting students? Interesting students for sure, but also interested students in Western countries. Um, that's inevitably a part of maintaining the field. So it's something that we we have to reckon with. I think. Uh, If I can be a bit controversial, I'll go ahead and say that the reason that it hasn't been dealt with yet is that many academics kind of see themselves as heirs to this aristocratic tradition and kind of look down their nose at public outreach and things like that. Uh, So that's something that has to change. I think it's not true in my generation anymore. So that's something that is changing. And yeah, and, and we have to make these things accessible just because, well, the way I see it is I have been very privileged to, you know, get paid to study at this elite university and get to spend my time doing these things that I'm really interested in. Um, not everyone is, is so lucky. Uh, we live in a world where people have to work for a living and, and most people have to work doing things that they don't like. And I feel a sense of, uh, obligation to them because of our shared humanity to make this information available to whoever's interested in it, right? If you have to wash dishes for a living, but you're interested in Egyptology, you should get to learn about Egyptology when you can. Um, we should not set up artificial barriers to entry. So that's something I'm doing with my online classes. So the, the things you mentioned, the, the Sasa things, that's Sasa's mission as well. That's why I participate in those things. Um, so we've done a few live streams and interviews. I'm also teaching a... Uh, free online introductory Coptic course. It's open to anyone who's interested in participating. Uh, maybe we can include a link in this at some point, um, and you can yeah, I can sign definitely
2: drop them in the show notes. Cool. Um,
3: yeah. So we're in lesson seven or eight now, but uh, you're welcome to join in. I'll help you get caught up. And yeah,
2: yeah, no, because definitely, uh, you know, even if I went into classics, sometimes I'll go back to my original love and and say, well, I'll be an armchair. Literary Egyptologists just critique things from when I read them because um, I have quite a small but decent, I would think, library of of Egyptology books, kind of just over on my bookshelf uh, that I turn to and enjoy when I whenever I just kind of feel bored or I'm like, you know, I just need a good dose of everything Egyptian right now. Um, so that's always fun. Um, and yeah, so you know, in, you know, so there's the accessibility issue on the. Collegiate level and the grander level, in terms of bringing it to more young people, say high school, or or even younger even, um, I was just wondering, like, I was just very curious, are there any ways you can see bringing a less scholarly, intense version of Egyptology to younger kids to get them interested and sort of put them on that path where they can then go through high school or whatever and be like, oh yes, I was so interested. I love this. And I do want to continue on it. Um, Cause I know so that, that there, is are, the... there, there are just so many different ways to do that. So, you know, there's not one right way, but.
3: There's not one right way. Uh, that's something that I thought a lot about and I came up with a way and you, you've unfortunately um, you've provided the perfect setup for me to plug my book that I'm writing. So I'm, I'm writing a, uh, like a middle grade to young adult uh, so designed for the ages of like ten to thirteen I'm writing a fiction book that's like set in a sort of ancient Egyptian world with ancient Egyptian magic and magic is real and, and of course all that kind of stuff um, and Egyptian gods are real and all those kind of things um so that that was my approach was to to write fiction that um Conveys a sense of place that you could only otherwise acquire by, like, doing a PhD program, right? I have a really good sense of what ancient Egyptian society was like and what things would have looked like to the average person on the average day, uh, but I acquired that through um, reading lots of long, dry, boring things. And so I wanted to find a way to convey that and and kind of make it fun. Um, so I invented this like semi-fictional world based on the world of like late period Egypt and uh, populated it with cast of characters. And, and there's a story. I think the story is pretty good. Uh, I'm still working on it. I'm about, how far am I? I'm more than three quarters done with the first draft of the manuscript. And I have a a sample first chapter online that people can go read if they're interested. So that's, that's one approach. One approach was to write a fiction book designed for younger audiences um, that would kind of convey the, the, magic and mystery of ancient egypt um while also containing like real information you know it's all the names are in egyptian um properly vocalized and everything because that's what i'm interested in um all the magic spells are in egyptian of course uh but but what else what else could there be what else could we do to attract younger people
2: I mean, you know, there's always the the question of accuracy, but for me, I think I was at quite a young age. The so Rick Riordan obviously is known more for his yep. Percy Jackson series, but he does have his Egyptian series. It's three books. King not Chronicles. Bad, yeah. Which are fantastic and I love them and I would recommend anyone read them. Um me too. but you know, I grew up in a time, I was born in the 90s, so they definitely were not written, so I did not have access to them, and I did not have access to a lot of the current games and and things that we have now, but now that we do have them, would it I I don't know if, you know, they're they're too violent or it's too real. I don't know what parents say these days. Um, not a parent. But, you know, I love watching things like the Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra and other things that give it a sense of, you know, the scale, the grandeur. Obviously it's not the most accurate ever. Um, some of the period costumes I take issue with. But, you know, when you see her kind of coming into Rome on that giant platform. Uh, that's golden with like a rotating thing that didn't exist back then, I still would have been like, Oh, this is so cool. I want to do that. You know, so could we maybe flood young kids with, with more media um, as an approach?
3: Yeah. I think including, um, I think Egyptomania is just fine. So, you know, this question of accuracy, it always comes up, you know, it comes up when we're talking about Assassin's Creed um, it comes up whenever you're talking about anything that has a connection to an academic subject. Um, you know, it comes up when we're talking about shows like uh house MD, you know, uh, med students will, will talk about how, how accurate it was. And that's like a, that's a check in the, in the pro column for that show. Right. Um, I, I kind of dispute that a little bit. I mean, he, yeah, uh, history is always constructed no matter, um, no matter how accurate, there is this element of, of uh, point of view and, uh, and bias and perspective and um, context and all of those things come into play. Um, I don't think of, so, so for me personally, I find the experience of writing fiction almost identical to that of writing academic papers, except that you use a different tone in your speech, you use a storytelling tone, and I don't have to cite any sources. Um, so it's not, it's really not all that different. I, I'm filling in the gaps in a, uh, a way that is the, the most logical I can come up with based on what I have at the time. I'm normally trying to show my work. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to show what is known and, and what I'm filling in. So that the, really the question of accuracy, it's 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 more of a variable variable. Um, you know, kind of a, a continuous value than it is this this binary value of, like, it's accurate or it's not. Um, I think accuracy really doesn't matter at all for attracting people to the field. Um, I think it's, in that case, totally irrelevant. Um, so the things that you see, you know, if you go to an old, like, um, Art Deco movie theater in the United States, everything is wrong about that. The proportions of everything is wrong. The, uh, the proportions are wrong. The... Um, you know the the gods are are mislabeled or the hieroglyphs are just totally made up scribble scrabble, and it it doesn't matter because if that inspires in you a love for all things Egyptian, for one thing, at at first you don't know that it's out of proportion because you haven't spent hundreds of hours staring at real Egyptian art, and and secondly you can always you can always change what you once knew. Um, this is something that I try to tell my students. All the time um, I have students worrying about oh am I pronouncing this correctly right now um, and I always try to tell them like no but you don't have to pronounce it that way forever right you're, you're under no obligation to be the same person you are five minutes ago you can pronounce it wrong now and we can focus on this one thing and then later once you get better at it you can pronounce it correctly and it's fine um, so I, I think the obsession with getting things right all the time is definitely the prerogative of older academics who know a subject so well um, and who have spent so many hundreds of hours studying it that they would never get certain things wrong. And then they tend to pr- kind of project that expectation onto other people. And I think it's counterproductive. It's it's Accuracy is not important when you're starting out. Um, starting out is important when you're starting out.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Because uh, as when people are younger, at least, I know we we tend to like accuracy, quote, unquote, just to be, you know, oh, I want it to be real. I want it to be right. But when you're that age, I also think you're not as interested in getting things right. Because you're like, well, I just, you know, I'm I'm not a scholar, I'm a kid. And I just want something that's cool, that'll draw me in, take, you know, pick my attention and you know, if I want it to be right, they can do more research later and then be presumably corrected. Um, but, you know, I just want to circle back to, um, you know, using video games like Assassin's Creed Origins in the educational setting. Because um, I know that when I watched the sort of video you did on Archeogaming, I noticed a lot of people were asking, well, you know, it may not be accurate, but it's still a good tool. So it kind of comes back to, is it the kind of tool that you would want to assign to students in a class to, to learn or to, um, you know, see, okay, well, what is, we're talking about the, the settings, we're talking about the landscape, the topography, uh, we're talking about architecture. It's one thing to point them to a book and just say, okay, go look at a picture versus being able to sort of physically interact with it.
3: Yeah, the physical interaction is super important. And um, so to, to answer your overarching question of um, overarching, I always get that wrong. Uh, to answer your main question of, of um, is this uh, an educational tool that you would recommend to students? I would say absolutely it is. I think it teaches things that are very difficult to learn from books. And I'll just use one example of this. So in the, in the main map for Assassin's Creed Origins, there are um, all these major sites in Egypt and they're, they're sort of like loosely to a, a real human scale but then they're all much closer to each other. So you kind of have this like Epcot version of ancient Egypt where it's like all these different places are just placed much closer to one another so that you can quickly go from one to the next. I That's not accurate, that's not how the reality on the ground is, uh, but you can correct that Right? You can take someone who's played through all of Assassin's Creed Origins and knows the exact layout of the map in the game. And you can say, "Okay, it's like that in real life, but everything's farther apart. They just squished it together for the game. And there you go. They now know the entire geography of ancient Egypt. Um, Now try to go in the other direction, take someone who hasn't played Assassin's Creed Origins, and give them them a map of ancient Egypt and tell them to memorize it. Good luck ever completing that task i 've tried myself, and i I, I never could uh, focus enough to actually like go all the way through um, like Baines and Melloc and like really learn all of the little tiny places and all the names of the gnomes and that kind of stuff because it 's boring it's um, if you interact with something you you remember it better, and if the thing you interact with is a little bit wrong, it only really takes one minor correction to totally set it right and give you a complete picture of the real thing that you're supposed to be learning.
2: Yeah. And I, I would definitely agree just because I have played it and I have used it. And I mean, I've done, I would say probably more background research than a lot of my friends. So I would kind of know what to look for. Um, but even the stuff that I didn't, I was like, Oh, this is so great. And I can learn the geography and and be like, well, it's over here, maybe not as short as it is, but it's there. And so um it definitely helps for retention um, of information just because you're you're interacting with it um for many hours. Um but yeah. also just in terms of like I I don't think it was as much of an issue in Odyssey, um, just because it's a little little easier, a little more recent. Um but you know i was thinking of because i i also read your paper um on using video games like origins as a as a digital tool um for all different kinds of education in terms of teaching language i was just kind of curious um because in odyssey the they're speaking greek they have greek language in there so that's you know whatever but I I know that the Egyptian kind of leaves a little to be desired. Um, so, you know, is that kind of just something you, you would say, well, didn't really do the best in that, so I wouldn't sort of recommend this for the language part?
3: Yeah, the, I wouldn't recommend the language as like a source of learning about Egyptian language. Um, it's the one thing that I tend to criticize because I feel like it's a place where um, they got a little lazy, honestly. So they they did such great work on that game and I have almost nothing but praise for it. Uh, So I want to preface this with that every time because I don't want to seem like I'm being overly critical. They did a wonderful job, but in the specific area of language, they kind of phoned it in a little bit. They collected some Egyptian phrases. They sent them to the audio guy. The audio guy had people read things into a microphone and splice them together and made um, kind of Egyptian sounding stuff Um, and even that even the Egyptian phrases they, they didn't do very well because of course the games taking place in the year was it 59 BC something like that um, first century BC and um, and we know what the language would have sounded like at that time because of course that's that's very near in time to Coptic which is uh, which we know how to speak um, so we know what Egyptian would have sounded like we know the kinds of things people would have said and those could have easily been used I think whoever made those decisions about Egyptian language kind of went for the default Middle Egyptian, which is actually 2,000 years too old for this setting. Um, and they just did it because it was the easiest, most accessible thing. And that goes back to this problem of accessibility, where um, we as Egyptologists have really not done a good job of um, kind of painting the full picture of this huge world for people. I mean, the, the time scales that we're talking about You know, the timescale that I just telescoped to say, hey, they could use Coptic and Assassin's Creed origins uh, because they're close enough in time. That's twice the age of the United States. And I just collapsed that time span. When we're talking about Middle Egyptian, it's the distance between us and Cleopatra. You know, that's the amount of time they they telescoped. This thing that we're studying is just almost um, unimaginably or incomprehensibly huge. And we're not always conveying that we tend to telescope it and see it as kind of this monolithic thing. Um, and yeah, we could do better.
2: Yeah. And I was, I was thinking about that just because, you know, it occurred to me that sometimes I go around and I, I say funny things from Odyssey, you know, uh, and it, it can it can also Teach you to use words that maybe you shouldn't Probably use uh, A common feature was always What's you know, the using... word that says? Like malaka Yeah, malaka, which you shouldn't Use, I mean, I don't know the I'm games... sure I just said
3: something very offensive I'm sorry, any Greek listeners
2: <laughs> Yeah, so, because I thought it was so funny Just because of the fact that I thought It was like, oh, well, that just must kind of Be code for fuck Or something, just really The ancient way of swearing really easily Just because whatever uh and then i talked to my greek friend and she was like no that's a really really rude word you shouldn't use never call somebody that um and then you know when i asked well okay then who uses it if it's that bad and she said well i guess really really close friends can call each other that um because it's like a term of endearment or something uh, what does it, 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 what
3: does it mean is it like son of a bitch or something
2: I think they said it's like the equivalent of calling something like a wanker, like go fuck yourself, like buggery or something. I forgot exactly how she ex- something um, explained it to me, but it was basically implying that you were going to go have sex with, I think, I don't know. It was something really rude. And I was like, okay, well, I will not say that or c- call someone that. Um, but, you know, it's funny because I learned that by talking to a Greek friend and then when I interact with a lot of the fan base, it's Malaka, 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 this, that, and the other thing. And they use it oh, just gosh. so flippantly. And I'm like, if you knew <laughs> what you were saying. And I was like, what happens if they all go to Greece because of this game? And then they start using that word with Greek people. I was like, you have no idea the damage that this could do. <laughs>
3: I wonder, <laughs> I, I wish we could, I can, I, I know some Greek people actually, I can just, I can ask them whether they've noticed an increase in the usage of that word. Uh, especially by foreigners that'd be kind of funny if there's like now this plague of like this horrifically rude language because of the video (laughs) game Um, i i would find
2: that really interesting so if you do ask yeah i'd be very interested to know i'm totally gonna Um, ask yeah just because i also made mistakes so i started modern greek after graduating school because i wanted to go do my grad work in greece at the university of athens and so i said okay well i'm gonna learn to speak Greek. Um, and so I I started learning. And then when we were learning basic terms for like families because of the game, I was like, oh, isn't it like mater and pater, which is what they use in the game? And my Greek teacher was like, uh no, that's like a Romanized Greeky mix that's just really bad and not used. So don't do that. And I was like, I had no idea that's what they didn't call them. I was like, oh, okay. Um, I mean, they're not that far off. It's just metera and pateras, which isn't that far. But still, it's wrong. And I wouldn't know that if I wasn't taking Greek. So sometimes I'm like, you know, this could just do the opposite. This could really do some damage from the language perspective. And especially, I, I kind of find it interesting how there's, I would appreciate some kind of language disclaimer, like, Hi, we're creating a mix-up of real and sort of fake language. Don't take this as the real thing, because it yeah. could get you into trouble. Um, that's just something I've kind of found.
3: I mean, accidentally swearing at someone, especially as a foreigner, could definitely get you into trouble. Um, but also, it, not that likely. Like in in my experience, as um, uh, you know, traveling a lot and spending a lot of time abroad. I, I've had plenty of moments uh, where I, I said the wrong thing. I think my favorite example, let me see, is, is probably from Spanish when in, in Spain, I, uh, I, I ordered like a cono of ice cream instead of a cono of ice cream. And like one of them is essentially the, the word cunt and the other one is the word cone. And, uh, and the, the lady making the ice cream just like lost it for a second and had to like recompose herself and hand it to me. Um, you know, it's probably, you're probably not gonna get in a fist fight over accidentally saying a bad word in a foreign language, but it would be, it would be nice if it were all correct um, because the experience of, of 100%ing a game like Assassin's Creed is hearing a lot of the NPC dialogue over and over and over again, to the point where it's just kind of burned in your memory. Um, and if it were correct, that would be an incredibly effective language learning tool. Um, so I, th- I think that's the biggest, that's my biggest complaint is the missed opportunity. Um, you have this opportunity of basically sitting someone down in front of a set of 100 ancient Egyptian flashcards and them going through those flashcards for 80 hours straight. Um, why wouldn't you make sure that the information in them is correct? Um, so yeah, some things, some things could be do could be done better. For
2: sure, yeah, and so this kind of segues perfectly into you know with trying to improve and get things to a place where they may be if not one hundred percent but more accurate um, so I know that Ubisoft has this project called the Hieroglyphics Initiative, um that they're kind of touting as a way to digitize and bring texts to a broader audience and I'm assuming in a, in a more accurate way. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I was thinking about this, because I, I know your your work with looking at texts. Um, is this initiative, you know, is it something that hopefully, not only will it help scholars when they're kind of looking at more material? Um, do you envision this as something that could eventually also go out and, and be looked at and become popular with like other people who maybe aren't in the field um, just because it's available?
3: I, th- I think both. I think it has, I actually think it has a greater utility for non-specialists. Um, well, you know, that, that I don't know. So um, the, the Hieroglyphics Initiative, Ubisoft contracted with a uh, British software company called Cycle um, out of, I forget the name of the place but anyway, I, I consulted with them. Uh, Alex Fry was the, the head of the project and it's, it's his company. And I went and stayed with him for a couple of days. Um, a few years ago when I just, I happened to be traveling like from Scotland to Belgium. So I like rented a car and went and visited him and we, we talked about the project and all this stuff. Um, really fun time. He has a beautiful house in the English countryside. Uh, so it was, and, uh, and a lovely family and all those things. So Alex, if you're listening to this, I had a wonderful time and thanks for having me. Um, and what he was trying to work on was a way, an easier way, of Egyptologists taking texts and uh, taking like images of texts and converting them into actual digital texts. So that's a bit of an abstract thing. Uh, you kind of have to be fairly computer savvy to to understand what the the actual uh, function of that is. But if you have a photograph of an Egyptian text, that can't be used. Except to be looked at, right? It's just a—it's a series of, you know, colored pixels. Um, there's, there's no actual text there. In order to use it to say uh, study the frequency of certain verb forms in an in actual Egyptian text, you have to convert it to digitized text, which means you have to actually like have a computer program that reads the signs in the image and converts them into some sort of encoded representation of the Egyptian script. And that's what he was working on. That's something that I've uh, worked on in my own research for a long time. I think that's how he and I ended up uh, chatting so much about these things. And the tools they made were super useful. So they made a tool for taking something like a sort of low quality image and um, cleaning it up and and, um, extracting all the different glyph shapes so that a computer program could more accurately convert it into Egyptian text. So that's, that would be really useful for scholars. I know the front end version of the project that Google just made public, um, it has all kinds of like quizzes and little activities. Um, I say little in the sense of they are short. They have like, it's like a 10 question quiz and you learn like five Egyptian hieroglyphs. I think those are great for introducing people to the subject. Um, if nothing else, they will uh, kind of reify the script as, Something that can be just read and understood in the same way that if you you know if you look at English or Cyrillic or you know uh, Tamil or or, or uh, Chinese or Japanese or any kind of like written script, whether you know it or not, you immediately appreciate that it is writing. Um, I think that's that's always the biggest hurdle with new students is convincing them that this is not picture writing. Um, these are not just it's not like man, go house and like a man and an arrow and a house. It's, actual, it's, the, it's the Egyptian language represented in script, just like um, written English is the English language represented phonetically with script. So it's huge for that um, and it's huge for, for making it, taking it from something that's just kind of like you see in movies and turning it into something that you can like pick up a book and learn. That was the transformation for me as an undergrad at UT seeing that there was a book called Egyptian Grammar um, where there were vocabulary lists that had pictures of like owls and ducks and stuff in them, um, it makes it a real thing that you can learn. I, I think that's the most important contribution.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm really excited to see what it becomes when it's finally done because I, I believe they're still working on it currently. Um, but yeah, I, I'd be, I'm i very curious to see what it would look like. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Um and so I was think but something like that initiative obviously can it's it's happening in large part because Ubisoft decided, hey, this is something we think would be worthwhile and but also recognizing that they are a giant gaming company who makes millions of dollars because people love games billions of dollars billions of dollars, so they have the funding to be able to put toward this project um. Yeah. But there generally otherwise seems to be really big issues with funding the humanities because in this day and age it just seems like no one really cares to to fund people to study these really old archaic things. And I, I find that to be such a such a such an issue just because a lot of times I talk to people and I'm like, but do you realize how like how much it's good for people to have a background in the humanities to to be able to take that and go into other things just because you major in any of the ancient disciplines doesn't mean you have to go into the field. I'm living, breathing proof of that. I was a classics major, but I'm not about to go into it at the, at the grad level. Um, so, you know, it's, just interesting to me how the big push is towards STEM fields and other things. Uh, I had a friend who really loves Egyptology as much as I do. And he said, My parents told me I absolutely 100% could not go and study that because I will never get a job, never be employed. It is not useful. There are no useful skills. His
3: parents were right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, as as an academic who actually went into the field, you know, do you do you feel that your research is so niche that like this was the only way you could go, or do you feel like you did actually also get things where you could go into something else if you couldn't get a job in Egyptology?
3: In my case, I could uh, just because I've also done so much math and coding because my my language research relies on. Um, like computational analysis of ancient Egyptian texts. So that's just uh, like any any academic is going to be sort of uh, synthesizing multiple fields. It happens in my case that the field that I am synthesizing with Egyptology is one that is highly in demand in, in other areas. So uh, I just happen to be fortunate in that regard. Um, I studied computer science growing up and I always I always loved it. And then I, I brought it into my study of uh, ancient languages, just because it was a, a thing that I'd been doing uh, since I was like 13 or 14. I'd been learning about computers and coding. So it just made sense. Um, so in my case, I'm kind of, I'm just coincidentally fortunate. I think in many cases people are not so fortunate and it's really, it's, it's a tragic thing. I think it ultimately goes back to um, some some short sighted, selfish decisions by uh, professional academics dating all the way back to the sort of uh, post war era uh, when there was all kinds of funding because basically, you know, uh, math and science and, and education saved the world from fascism. Um, and I, I, you know, it's a simplification, but I think it's still literally true. Um, education does save us from fascism and it has before. Uh, but then a lot of people in the post-war era, the, the U.S. government was was funding universities really heavily, and a lot of people started asking this question of, like, how do we measure the value of the humanities? Um, and then I think because, you know, it was the, the most pro-capitalist society you'll ever find... Um, the, the inclination was to find a capitalistic explanation for why the humanities are valuable. And capitalism, by its nature, demands that you um, uh, be able to translate everything into um, into a dollar metric of some sort. Something in order to have value, the value must be convertible into, uh, into money, into dollars. And that's simply not true in real life. And we know it's not true, of course. Um, no one would no sane person would, uh, you know, sell one of their children or something. We, we intuitively recognize that there are things that are valuable that simply cannot be measured in terms of dollars. But I think a lot of um, thinkers and, and public intellectuals at the time, instead of kind of uh, standing up and boldly saying like, this is not a capitalistic enterprise, it cannot be measured in those terms um, and you will ruin it if you try to do so because it's inapplicable. Instead, they tried to find clever ways of measuring the, the value of the humanities in terms of dollars. And those were lies. It's just not true. Humanities really have, have no monetary value whatsoever. They're valuable to us as human beings, um, and they, they are valuable to our souls, and our souls also have no monetary value. Um, so it's just a complete mistaken way of, of seeing it. It's kind of a tragedy of the common situation where it was individually beneficial to each person who made that argument, but then detrimental to the humanities as a whole in the long run. Um, so yeah, we've just got to get out of that. And I think people need to boldly say, no, this does not have financial value, um, uh, whether or not. Fortune 500 companies hire humanities PhDs because of their uh, breadth of wisdom and experience is irrelevant to whether we should study these things. Um, and you, I'm going to demand of you that you expand your understanding of value beyond financial value. And yeah, that's all there is to it.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that um, because yeah, these this is, you know, something that's priceless. People, you know, they ask me about, oh, you majored in that. Okay, great for you. What are you going to do? How do you feel? Do you regret it? And I say, of course not. Of course, I don't regret it. I wouldn't have wanted to do anything different. I love my major. I love having studied the classics. It makes me, I think, hopefully, a um, a, a better critical thinker and, and all the yada 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 that comes with studying really academic uh, reading intensive topics. Um, In but- some
3: way it has enriched your life right and, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think um, obviously you should answer the question whichever way you prefer but if you answered the question to me that way I would consider that a satisfactory answer. If, if you said you know studying the classics has enriched my life I would say that should be good enough for anyone. that means
2: your life yeah and i think it's really sad that some people don't want to sort of recognize that um you know no no matter what you say some people are going to be unhappy is what i've found or or at least dissatisfied um but just to kind of wrap all this up you know we as a well at least in the u.s are kind of a society that is very heavily based off of the Roman Greco-Roman world and ideals so not as much the ancient Near East Um, but you know do you still see you know certain veins of Egyptian more than just symbolism ideas cultural you know influences um, beyond just the superficial oh look that's a pyramid we like pyramids whatever do you still do you see that kind of um, oh my gosh
3: so much, um, I I see it all the time, and maybe I'm just primed to see it. But um, it, instead of trying to like come up off the top of my head with a list of things that would um, almost certainly be woefully incomplete, I'll just uh, I'll come up with an example. So uh, Egyptian wisdom texts um, are are pretty accessible. If you Google Egyptian wisdom texts, you'll probably find translations of them. The the worldview expressed in these texts. Is remarkably comparable to um, the the understanding of life that you'll find in like Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, um, and of course, uh, you know, Stoic thought and that kind of understanding of the world um, transferred to Europe, especially uh, especially the United Kingdom uh, for whatever reason that the whole British stiff upper lip. Um, mentality is is rooted in uh roman stoicism which is i think ultimately rooted in uh greek philosophy and you know the original stoics and then uh which is itself rooted in uh egyptian thinking about how to live life um and that's something that that we've imported you know if you watch any sort of watch any any western where there's a very quiet pensive cowboy who who can't change but does his best anyway. Um, that is ancient Egyptian wisdom texts in our modern society, for sure.
2: That's really cool. Yeah, I, I'm pretty I mean, I believe that there's gonna be so many different sort of influences from ancient Egypt that I see that I don't recognize, but I I kind of have a suspicion, oh, there must be something here beyond the very, very in your face apparent. Um I, I'm pretty sure when I was watching, what was it? Oh goodness, um, yeah uh, Gods of Egypt, that so bad it's good, um, yeah. film. I'm pretty sure I I I don't remember exactly what it was, but I was watching it and I said, oh, I think this whatever a character was saying sounds really applicable to modern times, and I was like, oh well, then, hey, look, that's not, um, you know, um. I wish I remembered what that was it, whatever, maybe I'll go back and, and watch it
3: there uh, there go take a look at it there there are There are lots of those um, yeah <laughs> there are so so many examples like that
2: and there's so it's funny the, I seem to find that there are more movies with sort of an Egyptian flavor that just can't even be called anything near accurate or good. They just sort of incorporate egypt into them um but we we love them anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean,
3: cheesecake factory, right? Like, so I used a very abstract example involving like philosophy and worldview, but like, go to a cheesecake factory. It's clearly like Egyptomania in style. Uh, Why? What does Egypt have to do with cheesecakes? I don't know. Uh, We just like Egypt, you know? It just shows up everywhere.
2: Yeah, we just, very aesthetic. Um, So, in these last few minutes, I love the poem *Ozymandias*. It's what I've named my podcast after, uh, and I think that it is—well, it's my favorite poem of all time because I think the mark of a good poem is that it can be applicable at any point in time. It doesn't matter when it was written if you can still kind of think about it and use it now. You're like, "Oh, that's a great poem." Um, so I love to have all my guests read the poem and then just sort of give me, you know, your your thoughts on on what it means. What is it does it speak to you in any way?
3: Okay, um, yeah. Let me see. Uh, I might mess it up because I'm just going to go from memory, but, you know, we'll see how it goes.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com spoken today.
3: Um, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and s- sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. But yeah, uh, that's a cool poem. I love it so much. Um, if I missed a line in there, I apologize. But No, so, I
2: actually was like, wow, it's, it's really ingrained in there because that was perfect. Yeah.
3: It was a spot on. Oh, nice. Yeah, spot well, on. Um, so I think my favorite thing, I have so many favorite things about that poem. Um, one of the things that I really love about it is the meter. So the meter and rhyme scheme. The rhyme scheme is fairly complex I don't remember I don't have it in front of me, but it's like it's like a b a c d a b d c like it's a really like uh interwoven rhyme scheme, which is pretty cool um, the and the way the meter um, is sort of tweaked a little bit so it's written in it's written in iambic tetrameter I think, but then there are there are places where the um, where like the first foot is a trochee. So I'm I'm getting way too much into meter, but like there are places where the line sort of goes like up down up down and kind of does this kind of like uh, bunting type metrical thing where it's like up and down. And there are lines that sort of start on an unstressed syllable and then bounce up and down, um, and that perfectly mirrors the mood of what the lines are saying. So if something's sort of like left hanging and incomplete, the meter like conveys that uh, perfectly, uh, just the way we would in normal speech. So I I love how well technically crafted that poem is. Um, In terms of content, uh, there's so much good stuff in there. Probably my favorite element is the King of Kings, because that is an actual, common afroasiatic way of expressing the superlative, so Egyptian actually doesn't have comparative and superlative adjectives, so you can't say that something is good, better, and best. you just say something is good with respect to other things and that means it's better than other things, or you say that something is uh, a good the the good of the good the good of the good ones right um so it's like among the good things, it's even gooder than the good things. So it's the best. Um, And king of kings is one such phrase. So it actually mirrors Egyptian grammar. And of course, we know about it in English via uh, translations of the Hebrew Bible. Um, But that's actually not a native English construction. That is an Afroasiatic construction. So those little linguistic elements are just awesome obviously like it's just there, there's little easter eggs in there for for a linguist i think the uh the sense of elegant decay um kind of the uh the the lost ancient civilization it's so well conveyed in that poem and i think any egyptologist would be lying if they didn't admit that that's part of the appeal right this notion of this mysterious lost world where it's just like the decaying remains of stone palaces and and temples and things, its its never stops being fascinating. Um, and then there was one, one, one last thing I was gonna say about it. What was it? Oh, I was going to mention um the, the Dender temple in the Met, there's this like broken statue inside of it, which just makes no sense. Um, I even asked one of the curators, I know why in the world is that statue in there? Like it's not a temple statue, it doesn't belong there, it's broken in half. Um, And that is probably the reasoning that, so if you go to the Met and you go inside the temple, there's like a half broken statue in there. That is the poem Ozymandias being realized in a museum display. Uh, It has no historical um, reference whatsoever. It's just this feeling of elegant decay that we just love and deliberately seek out.
2: Yeah, and so I'm, I'm really excited to ask this, uh, just because you're the first Egyptologist I've been able to get on the podcast. Um, does it change anything for you to read this knowing that while it's called Ozymandias, that's just the Greekified name of Ramesses? Does it change anything knowing, you know, it's, it's actually a pharaoh, while well, a classicist might read it and say, yeah, well, I know who he is, but I'm looking at, at it from a more classical perspective?
3: um so the thing that stands out for me about that is that his name was something like ozymandias um so the 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 prenomen of the pharaoh was the one that was actually used the uh the nomen is the one that we use in modern times and we append the numbers to it so like ramses the second is ozymandias um his his name his name as pharaoh so his, his formal name was ozymandias um that's presumably what people, how people would have referred to him at the time. Uh, That's how texts refer to him. Um, And the vocalization at that time probably would have been something quite like Ozymandias. Let's see, it would be Ozymaire. So it's pretty darn close. It's closer than Usur Ma'atre, or Usur Ma'atra, which is how uh, Egyptologists would traditionally, according to modern scholarly conventions, would read that that name. So yeah, that's the thing that sticks out to me about it is that they're like, we're actually kind of pronouncing his name correctly because knowledge of that name got passed down, uh, which didn't always happen, of course. Um, In terms of reading it from an Egyptian versus classical perspective, um, I think there is a notion of Egypt as a sort of a a failed civilization that is born from um, a, a colonial worldview. Egypt has been colonized repeatedly, uh, starting with the Macedonian Greeks, then the Romans, and then um, then the Arabs, of course, and then the Ottomans. Just uh, several different caliphates, and then the Ottomans. Um, so, and then of course the French and the British, and all the way up until independence, and even today, it's uh, still not. Uh, Egypt is not totally free it doesn't have free and fair elections and all those kinds of things um and then the u.s propped up mubarak's dictatorship right so egypt has basically been colonized since uh 332 bc um and a big part of that of the pro-colonialist propaganda is treating egypt as this kind of like uh dead civilization this this failed eternal civilization Uh, and that supports a colonialist agenda which says we need to go in there and fix everything up and, and make it great again, which is, I said it before and I caught myself saying it, but it's what I mean to say, you know, it's this kind of, it's this narrative of, you know, the the antebellum South or or any other place in history where kind of people have an agenda. um, They will use this kind of uh, lost cause, failed civilization um, imagery to, to justify it. Um, and that's that's in the poem Osamandius a little bit. I, I don't see it as being central to the poem's appeal. So it doesn't it, for me, it it the poem itself is not necessarily problematic. But uh, but yeah, that's definitely in there.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I do love the different take. And I was really, really excited to be able to finally ask an Egyptologist about uh, the poem from their perspective, uh, because reading it for me. Um, you know sometimes i just read it and i think oh this is such a memento mori over here like oh my goodness yeah um what a what a time to read it and be alive (laughs) um so the last thing that I want to do really quickly here um, is ask you kind of a, a fun question because we've been talking about a, a lot of really sort of deep, super scholarly, interesting things that I, I do love. But this one is kind of just a, a really a softball question uh, to have some fun at the end. Um, what if there were three mythological people from Egyptian mythology that you would like to sort of meet and, and have a conversation with? Uh, who would you choose and why?
3: So that mythological, they can't have been like real living people at any time?
2: Oh, I suppose, you, you know what? Let's make it who real life or mythological. Real life or mythological.
3: Um, so Amun would be my first choice because he is my, my favorite Egyptian deity. And then um, Anup or Anubis also one of my favorites. I would love to meet both of them and uh and Hathor. Actually, I'm just going to choose 3 deities cuz that like it, it since I'm getting to choose I'm, I would definitely pick 3 deities. Um if I had to choose real people, I'm going to say just for the sake of argument that I have to choose real people, let's see. Um probably Pia or Pionki would be one of my first choices. Uh, he's a uh, a Nubian ruler who invaded Egypt um, and left uh, the description of his invasion. And he just seems like a super interesting guy to me. Um, I would probably want to meet someone really old, like Narmer, um, assuming that he was an actual living person. I would love to meet him and just find out what his world is like. And then um, because I'm just such a language nerd, I would probably pick um, Setna Hamas, was the fourth son of Ramses the Great because he would go around and like rest for them so I would want to record everything he says so I could have him and I would also just like to talk to him his life experience so yeah
2: okay um okay yeah I think those are all really really fun choices um I just I love this question because for me it's very singular I have found um when people ask me all the time that oh yeah that you know oh who from history would you want to talk to blah 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 uh i my answer is i find always 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 going to be akhenaten because i have always been obsessed with the amarna period and everything with it
3: he creeps me out so much oh my gosh
2: <laughs> the architecture um, part or just like the he was insane. i think
3: him I think he was totally insane. I think, I think we have enough evidence to confidently say that he was literally an insane person. Um, you know, it's always problematic when you're looking so far back in history. And, I, and I'm saying that is problematic just to be sure anyone listening to this should not take this and, and take it to mean that Akhenaten was definitely insane. Um, but I feel like the balance of the evidence does suggest that. I, I think it's fair to say that he was probably totally insane. Um, so yeah, it'd be interesting to meet him for sure.
2: Yeah, just want to know, you know, what was going on in that brain of his. Um, you know, the the questions we all want to ask, I'm sure. Um, yeah. but yeah, thank you so much though for coming on the podcast. Um, you know, it was a real treat to be able to speak with you today. Um and just
1: just yeah, have at have at it and chat and whatnot. Um Thank yeah, you so much,
3: Lexi. It was wonderful been to be so here. Fun.
1: Trireme Transit is now departing ancient odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.